And I just want to share some words of, of maybe of encouragement. Um, we just got back from holiday in Wales, got back yesterday evening. I hope that's evident to you. It should be evident in my relaxed demeanor. Um, it should be evident in something of a tan. That's because there was a bit of sunshine. The sun does shine in Wales. We found that it is legal. You are allowed to take off your cagoule. Um, and, and we got some sun, and I hope you can see a bit of a tan. I'm good. And, and, and you may also, if you know me, notice that I've been on holiday because my clothes have all shrunk. Um, and that's because of ice cream. Um, we were at a little place called Newquay in Wales. It has a winter population of 600 people. And in a town of that size, it has three ice cream suppliers. One of them making unique local ice cream. And I could have resisted the temptation. I know I could have. But the woman that the Lord gave me <laughs> said to me, this is good to eat. And she gave it to me, and so I ate of it. <laughs> over and over again. So... Um, I have said that I'll be eating only lettuce for the next three months um, to, to try and get my clothes to fit me again. But it's good to be back, but it was good to be away on holiday. And we had some really good days on the beach, some really sunny days. Um, and the beach was crowded with people who were there to have fun. They were there to have a good time and to unwind and to relax. Um, some people unwound and relaxed in other ways, evening before last, sitting, having a cup of coffee at an outdoor table, and a crowd of people coming out of a live music event at one of the pubs, and very loud, and some of them struggling to stay on the pavement, but determined to show that they were having a good time. And there were a lot of people having a good time, especially the children who quite unaffectedly were, were enjoying themselves and going about it, but I'm a bit of a people watcher. Um, one of my favorite places to be is at an airport early for my flight. And I sit and watch the people, and I try and figure out what's going on at that moment in their lives. And sitting on a beach, I look at people. And it's interesting. If you spend a couple of weeks in one place, you get to know certain families as they arrive on the beach. You, you don't know them, but you know them by sight. There's one particular couple. My wife and Sue have decided he's a consultant and his wife is a housewife. I'm determined he's a, he's a fireman and, and she's a nurse. Because um, you don't know them, but you look at them and, and you see how they interact. And you also see families interacting and you see couples interacting and you see people interacting. And you, you begin to see those who land up by themselves and those places where the happiness on the beach is maybe just a little bit of a veneer, of a veneer because something goes slightly wrong and, and, and you see a spat take place. And you see some of the, the folk who just don't seem to have anybody to be on the beach with and so forth. And as I sat there, I did think at some stages that probably a lot of these people having fun on the beach are carrying lots of hurt and lots of pain of various kinds. And then to, to kind of uh, steer me further in where I've gone with what I want to share with you this morning, I was sitting with Sandra and with Ian and Sue in, in a little restaurant um, and, and I looked up, and you know, people sell a lot of pretty tat um, at the seaside. Lots of things that you don't need. Um, and, and lots of philosophical sayings, some of them bawdy, some of them deeper. But there was this board up painted in, in a very seaside sort of cream color with that light blue faded color that people use to indicate you're at the seaside. And it said, life is not about waiting for the storm to end. It's about learning to dance in the rain. That's quite twee, but it's quite an interesting thing. Life is not about 
waiting for the storm to end. It's about learning to dance in the rain. And while we were sitting there, I was thinking, okay, I've got to get back. The day after I get back, the evening after I get back, I've got to preach. What am I going to preach about? And I made the mistake of asking Sandra and Sue what their opinion was. Um, because they then gave it and they said, oh, you know, talk about hurt and about people going through hurt and, and, and the storm and so forth. And it just kind of came together that maybe this morning, if, if I was listening, God needed me to speak to you with some words of encouragement because the truth of the matter is we go through storms and we go through pain. We all go through pain at some stage in our lives. Uh, various challenges and hurts, durations and intensities. Some of the suffering we go through is intense. Some of it is chronic. Some of our problems are physical. Some of them are relational. But we go through times of hurt and we go through times of loneliness and we go through times of pain. And I'm pretty sure that a number of people here this morning are carrying stuff. I'm pretty sure that a number of people here are dealing with things. Some of them you may have spoken to folk about. Some of them you might be keeping quiet. But they're there because we spoke about feasting at the table of the Lord and, and we, 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 we talk about a place where there'll be no tears. But right now we live in a world where we're surrounded by the monuments of greed and pain, where we're surrounded by the evidence of man's fallibility and of our sin and of our failure. And it's not a perfect world that we live in. We're living in the kingdom of God in the spiritual world, but physically we're living in this world where people do stuff, good stuff and bad stuff. And it's not a pre-programmed world where everything that happens is the will of God. People do stuff that's the will of their own lives, and sometimes that hurts us, and sometimes that causes pain. And we walk around with it, and sometimes it overwhelms us. Right now, some of us in this room will be dealing with real problems in our everyday lives. Times of being on the beach and kicking back and relaxing, they're fantastic. And they do do something for us. They, they restock our batteries. And, and, but they tend to be few and far between. And times of, of soaking in, in, in the presence of God in worship and, and in prayer build us up and sustain us. But often we walk from that warm embrace into a world that slaps us and kicks us and presents us with real challenges. If you have been in that position, if you are in that position, or if you know someone who's in that position, and I guess that covers all of us now, then I need to share some words with you this morning that I believe God just wants to share with you. And I'm not going to try and present a a huge, deep, new teaching on suffering. I'm just going to remind you of some things and try and encourage you. And so there are a few points I want to touch on with reference to Scripture about the possibility of you going through a time of real suffering because ongoing suffering, ongoing stress can lead us to a place where that overwhelming becomes something that stops us functioning properly. In medical terms, we talk about depression. We talk about clinical depression, which is a very real physiological disease that's affecting a lot of people in the world today. A very misunderstood disease. But it's affecting a lot of people. In the business world, they call it burnout. It, it's, it sounds more acceptable to call it burnout than to call it depression, but it's the same thing. It's when we get to the end of our reserves and we have nothing left to give and the world is still asking. And we begin to burn the wick and not the, not the oil in the lamp, we begin to burn the wick and we begin 
to feel incredibly fatigued and isolated and we begin to retreat into our shell and life becomes very, very difficult. I want to say to you that if you find yourself in that position now or at any time, first thing I want to say to you is to what you are going through, don't add guilt. First thing I want to say to you is don't add guilt to what you're going through. I've been through various phases in my Christian walk. I've shared some, some of my Christian walk in this church, and by now most of you will know I grew up in a very conservative environment. It was very much expect a bit of suffering. You have a good day today, you're going to pay for it at some stage in the future because, well, you know, we're not that good and, 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 and our sins will find us out. And but then I got to a point where I, I, I was in a what would be considered a very happy, clappy church. We were demon-stomping, prophesying warriors. And we were taught about the power of confession of our mouth. And that's a very strong teaching. The Bible says we will eat of the fruit of our lips. We need to be careful what we say. But it was pushed almost to the limit. I had a friend who would haul me up if I spoke about the little arrow on the screen of my computer being called a cursor. Christians don't have curses, we have blessers. You move your blesser. And if the church announced that they were going on a retreat, she would rebel and say, I'm going on an advance. And I was always blessed. You could find someone walking down the road, dragging a broken leg behind them, with scars and batters all over them. How are you, brother? I'm blessed. And the truth is, we are blessed because we're on our way to heaven. But sometimes, I I want to remind you of this. When little David went out to face Goliath, with his stone and his sling. He didn't walk out there and say, there is no giant, there is no giant, there is no giant. I don't see a giant. I'm a mighty man of faith. There is no giant. What is your problem, Israel? He said, there's a big problem here. Nine feet of problem here. But I have a God that's bigger. And I want to say to you, if you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're depressed, if you're lonely, if you're hurting, if you're waiting for God to do something and it's not happening, and you're... you're finding it hard to stand. Don't let the devil come and add guilt to that. I shouldn't be feeling this way. I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be feeling this way. I know the Word of God. Therefore, I'm a bad person for feeling it. Don't let him lay that on you. Now, the Bible says to us, as Christians, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody said to me one day, so what's the difference between condemnation and conviction? And I don't know if this is the correct dictionary, but conviction, when God is trying to convict you of something, when you are doing something that's wrong, and God wants you to, con- to convict you of that so that you will change and behave differently, God comes and says, do that. He doesn't say, you bad, sit in the corner, I don't like you, feel bad, feel guilty. He says, come from where you are, and I convict you to do something about the situation to go forward. God's conviction is to take you to a place of victory or a place... The devil's condemnation comes and says, you bad, bad, bad person, sit over there, you're worthless. Feel guilty about your mistakes. Feel guilty about falling. You fall down, God won't let you stay down there. And if you're doing wrong, he won't say it's good. He'll come and say, come out of that. That's not the right thing to do. Jesus comes into town and Zacchaeus meets him. And he doesn't turn to him and say, you bad, bad tax collector, go and hide over there. He goes into his house and says, come with me. That's conviction. Condemnation brings guilt And it incapacitates us. And it's one of the devil's favorite weapons. He comes and he loads it on you. 
You shouldn't be feeling this way. You shouldn't be acting this way. You're better than this. You've been taught better than this. You've experienced better than this. How can you, as a mature Christian who's been walking around, how can you be feeling this way? You failure. And we step back. So, number one, I'd like to encourage you, don't add guilt to your problem. You're in good company if you're struggling. You're in good company. Remember a guy called Jonah? The guy that landed up inside the fish? Has an amazing ribcage experience in the middle of a great fish, praying to God. Gets spat out on the shore. Goes into the city of Nineveh with a message of God. Goes through the city of Nineveh giving the message of God that God's going to bring destruction on them. And they repent. Because of his word, they repent. And he gets the huff and he goes and sits. And if you read in the book of Jonah chapter 4, he says at one point, it says, when the sun rose, God provided the scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. He said, it would be better for me to die than to live. A mighty prophet of God who has just rebuked an entire city and seen them turn around. And because things don't go the way he expected and God doesn't do things the way he expected, he finds himself sitting, feeling sorry and saying, I would prefer to die. King David, in our home group, we've been reading Psalms over the last while. King David's a lovely man. He's so honest. Psalm 6, verse 6, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all of my foes. This is the man who killed the giant when he was a little boy. You're in good company. Luke 22 Peter replied, man, I know not who you are talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. You're in good company if you go through times of struggling. Becoming a Christian is not a free pass. That nothing bothers you, nothing gets to you. First thing, don't add guilt. Second thing I want to say to you is don't see it as a consequence of specific actions that you've done. That's the next thing the devil wants to come along and say, you know why you're suffering like this? Because you did that. You know why you're struggling with this? Because you don't deserve to be better because you didn't do that. And he tries to tie where we're at as a consequence of our... Now, guys, if you've robbed a bank and the police are knocking on your front door, that is a consequence of your actions. (laughs) Okay? Let's not get so heavenly minded that we know earthly good here. But the devil loves to come and look at your situation and say, you deserve that. You can't go to God and ask him to fix that. You deserve that because you haven't been in church often enough. You haven't been paying your tithe. You haven't been kind to your neighbor. You kicked the cat. So you're feeling a bit of bad? You deserve that. That's where you deserve to be. Sometimes we look at the situation we're in and we try and link it to something that we've just done and we look for something. I want to spend a bit of time looking at a mighty man of God. A man called Elijah. A man who's a legend in terms of his accomplishments. Well, he's not a legend, he's the true deal. And I want to look at a part of his life. He's done a whole bunch of things, but the time comes when God says to Elijah, there's a really, really bad king in Israel, and he's got an even worse wife. 
Ahab and Jezebel, names synonymous with suffering and pain and disobedience. And they're running Israel really badly, and God says to Elijah, go and tell the king it's not going to rain until you say. And so Elijah goes and says it's not going to rain, and it doesn't rain. Talk about power. God says, you go and tell the king it's not going to rain until you say so, until God lets it happen again. And the land goes through a drought. And in that time, Elijah has miracles happen in his life. You've heard the story of the widow of Zarephath with a few little bits of, of, of stick that she's making her fire with and a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And he says to her, will you feed me? And she agrees to And her, her food is in abundance for the rest of the time that they're in drought. You've probably read about ravens bringing him food. I mean, the power of God in your life, seeing miracles... Elijah's had it all. And then the time comes that God says, okay, now it's time to go back. He says in in 1 Kings chapter 18, the Lord came to Elijah and said, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And while he's walking, he meets a guy called Obadiah and we're going to come back and refer to what Obadiah said. Obadiah serves the king, but he's a faithful man of God. And when Jezebel is wanting to kill all the prophets in the country, Obadiah is heading a bunch of them away in caves and is looking after them. And when uh, along comes Elijah and says, Obadiah, go and tell the king I'm here. And he says, are you joking? I must go and tell the king you're here. Do you know what they say about you? They've been looking for you everywhere. And when people say you're here and they arrive to arrest you, you're gone. So I'm going to go and tell the king you're here. And when he comes back, you're not going to be here and I'll be killed. He says, you don't tell him yourself. So Elijah does. And he goes and tells the king, God is going to show that he is greater than the Baal God that they were working and the people that Ahab and Jezebel, who was, by the way, from the Phoenician Empire, married into by Ahab, that they had been leading the people into worshipping Baal. He says he's going to prove something. And you know the story because it's told in Sunday school. He challenges the prophets of Baal. He says, we're going to have a pray-off. We're going to put sacrifices down. We're going to set up an altar and put our sacrifices on the altar and you guys go first. You call on your God to send fire on your sacrifice. And when you're done, I'll talk to my God. And the prophets of Baal have a real dog and pony show. They set up their their, their altar, they put their meat on it and they dance and they cut themselves and they scream and they shout and they implore and they perspire and they expire and they do all sorts of weird things and they jump around and Elijah is cool as he could come After a while he says to him, maybe he's gone out, maybe he's resting, maybe you need to shout louder. And they carry on and they carry on and they carry on, no fire. And when they're done, Elijah says, right. And they dig a trench around his sacrifice and they pour water all over it. So he's got a soggy sacrifice. And he calls on God and fire from heaven comes down and consumes the whole deal. Evaporates the water, burns the stone, It's awesome power of God. And there's a tremendous victory. Let me read. Hold on a couple of chapters in there. Then Elijah commanded them, verse 40 of chapter 18 of 1 Kings, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. He takes on all of these prophets, and physically they are subdued. This is a man, he's, he's on fire. You want to look at a ministry that's going dynamically, 
this guy's on fire. And then he says, let's go further. He says to Ahab, it's going to rain now. And they look at the sky and yeah, it didn't look like the beach at Wales. There was not a cloud. And he says, but it's going to rain. He says to Ahab, you better stay for home. The king, you better leave Mount Carmel and start for home because it's going to really start raining. And there's no rain. And he begins to pray. And he begins to pray. And he prays. And a little cloud as big as a man's fist appears. And the next thing, it covers the sky and it begins to rain. Man, this guy's doing good. This guy's doing good. And when that happens, in his enthusiasm and his physical strength, he runs ahead of Ahab's chariot. He runs into town. Everything is going well for Elijah. Let's go to the next chapter. Now Ahab, verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make, do not make your life like that of one of them, like one of the dead prof uh, prophets of Baal that he's killed. She says, I'm going to kill you. To Elijah, who has confronted the king, who has prayed and drought has come on the land, who has been fed by ravens, who has multiplied flour and wine, who has taken on the prophets of Baal, who has brought fire from heaven, who has prayed rain down from heaven in front of the king and in front of all these prophets. And Jezebel sends him a message, says, I'm going to kill you. And he turns around and rebukes her. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. It says this, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there because he wasn't running fast enough. This boy was getting out of here. While he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came to a broom bush and sat under it and prayed that he might die. Totally discouraged, totally fearful, totally caught with his own inadequacy, totally caught up with his frailty, afraid of this brutal queen who had killed so many people. Take my life, he said. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. An angel? How encouraging. An angel feeds you? If you were feeding a little bit down, you woke up one day and the angel standing in the room saying, it's okay, here's something to eat. Might lift your spirits a bit. Not working with him. It says, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for your journey's too much for you. He got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Doesn't go back after he's been restored. Runs away into a cave 40 days journey away and he hides. What I'm trying to say to you guys is if you feel that your suffering and your sense of loss or your loneliness or your anxiety or your depression is a consequence of not being a mature enough Christian or something that you've just done, then what had Elijah done? He's in power serving God and suddenly his own human frailty overtakes him. Guys, we are earthen vessels into which God pours his spirit. We make a mistake if we think that makes us powerful. He is powerful in us. He is powerful through us. 
and our frailties are there and they catch up on us. Just notice a couple of things as we're going on. God doesn't say, oh my goodness, there goes that Elijah bloke. That seems to have been his innings. He's blown it now. Can't use him again. I'll forget about him. Let's find one of these other prophets somewhere hiding in a cave. No. God sustains him. Sends him an angel. Sends him food. Encourages him. But he lands up in a cave. Maybe you're in a cave. Hiding away from whatever's bothering you. Feeling that you deserve to be in a cave. Feeling that searching for what it is that is the cause of whatever bringing you unhappiness. And while you're alone in the cave, the devil's coming and saying to you, you deserve this. You should stay there. God can't use you again. You ran away. You're hiding in a cave. You're not worthy. Maybe you're finding yourself there. Well, God comes to speak to him. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? God will challenge you. He doesn't come and say, oh, Elijah, there, there. Sends him what he needs. Sends him encouragement from the angel. But then he goes to him and he says to him, what are you doing here? Why are you in this cave? And he's got his answer ready. He's got his answer ready. And his answer is tinged with self-pity and almost accusation against God. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. But the Israelites have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Here's the next thing that happens when you get isolated in a cave with your stress and your, and your loneliness and depression. You start seeing things wrong. That is not accurate, what he just said there. That's how he feels. He says, you're not succeeding because they're worshipping Baal. He says, I'm the only person left serving you. Obadiah has told him, I've got more than a hundred prophets hiding in caves that I've been sustaining. And he says, it's better that I die. And guys, here's the thing. Those are his honest feelings. But I want to say this to you. Feelings are just feelings. They are not right and they are not wrong. They are just feelings. They're very intense, and they're very powerful, but they can be wrong. I want to say to you, feelings are a part of our life. We're built as emotional beings, and God cares about our feelings. I'll show you that. But feelings are just feelings. They're neither right nor wrong. If Colin was to stand up and come over here and punch me flat on the nose, I would feel certain things. Okay? I'd feel pain. Okay? I would feel disappointment. He's my dear friend. He's my brother. I would feel a bit of anger because what man likes to be punched on the nose? I would feel maybe a bit of fear that he's going to do it again. He's a big bloke. All those feelings would spring immediately into my being. They're neither right nor wrong. They're just my feelings. What am I going to do about it? Am I going to let those feelings govern me so that I either run away or hit him back, which would be foolish? Because he's a big bloke. And I probably can run a bit faster than him. I can't hit as hard as him. 
But am I going to let those feelings dictate what I do? I'm not saying they're not valid. They're going to come. They're real. You feel them. Feelings are very powerful, but they can be wrong. You can fall in love and feel great compassion and tenderness and attraction to somebody who's the wrong person. People find that out all the time. And they say, but I feel... Yeah, that's very real. You, you, can, you can feel... Elijah felt all alone, but he wasn't really. There were other prophets. He felt incompetent, but he wasn't really. He felt used up, but he wasn't really. We can make the same mistakes. And if we live our lives allowing those feelings to control us, it's a very up-and-down Christian walk that we have. Because they're very powerful, they're very real. You can feel lust, you can feel greed, you can feel anger, bitterness. You can, unfeel, you can feel unworthy of the love of others. That's one of the things that, that people who are isolated by sadness and depression and, and, and stress most often bring out. I'm not worthy. And you know, that's part sometimes just of the disease, but it's also part of the devil's plan. You're not unworthy. The Bible says differently. And often the Bible says differently to our feelings. And we have a choice. Don't be guilty about your feelings. There's a difference between feeling something and meditating on something. You need to think about that as well. See, let's get back to my scenario. Colin pops me on the nose. All those feelings come up. Now I have a decision. What do I do about them? If I'm wise and he's going to do it again, I run away. But now what am I going to do with those feelings? Am I going to plot my revenge? Am I going to hate him? Am I going to decide not to forgive him? Or am I going to say, what does God say about a situation like this and seek reconciliation with my brother? Gentlemen, you're walking on the beach and this very attractive young lady walks past and your brain goes, it's a feeling. It's a real feeling. We are built with the capacity to feel sexual attraction and lust. And so your mind goes there. It's a feeling. What are you going to do about it? Are you going? A friend of mine said, it's always the second look you need to worry about. Are you going to go back again for another look? And are you then going to carry that image in your mind and begin to meditate? You can do something about that. That's within your control. Feelings pop up, but you needn't meditate on them. You needn't dwell on them. You needn't make your decisions about what you're going to do on them. They're very, very powerful, but they are just feelings. And Elijah, at this point, when God says to him, what are you doing here? The God that has used him so powerfully, he speaks his feelings. He says, let me find it again. I'm looking in the wrong place. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put the prophets to, the death, with, uh, to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. He speaks his feelings. They are genuine feelings. That is what he feels at the moment. That's what's driving him at the moment. But his feelings are wrong. God doesn't rebuke him as such for his feelings. God says to him, get out and stand on the mountain. 
don't stay in the cave. Get out of the cave. And he says, for the presence of the Lord is about to pass by. He says, get out of the cave and get in my presence. Get out of the cave and get in my presence. And it says this. You've probably heard one of these phrases, and you might have forgotten where it came from. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. He shows his power. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Some translations call it a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he put his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then the voice said to him again, Elijah, what are you doing here? I want to say this to you. When you're in that place in your cave, you tend to want to look at the circumstances. The fire, the earthquake, the storm, and whatever. And you look to those earthly things happening around you. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've had to deal with youngsters at my school, little teenagers especially, and quite often at that particular age it's the girls. And they come and say to me, those girls are bullying me, they're talking about me. And I say, what are they saying? And they say, no, I haven't heard them say anything, but I see them talking together, and I'm sure they're talking about me. And on occasion, I've actually got them all in the room, and they've not been talking about that other person at all. It's all there. It's all in there. It's what she's feeling. And so she's... When you're in that place in your cave of depression and brokenness and and things, you look at the circumstances around you and you place meaning in them. I haven't seen this person for a couple of weeks. They're avoiding me. Pastor says something while he's preaching at church. He's picking on me. Something goes wrong in the business. God is punishing me. And God wasn't in the earthquake and he wasn't in the fire and he wasn't in the storm. He was a quiet voice that spoke and said, Right. What are you doing here? And we need, I would say this to you, if you're in your cave, listen for the voice of God above the circumstances and above your feelings. And you can always find the voice of God in his word. Look to the word. Look for God's words. And he says to him, what are you doing here? And he repeats. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars. He repeats the same thing. And God says this to him. He says, go back the way that you came. Go back the way that you came. And he directs him and he says, this is what you need to do. And he gives him clear instructions which indicate that he's not finished with Elijah. He's not done with Elijah. His race has not run yet. There's plenty for him to do. And he says to him, I've prepared other people to be with you. He says in verse 17, Jehu will put, together, put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bound. He says, Israel hasn't given up. God speaks the truth into his life, the reality of what's going on, and he says, this is the road that you can walk in it. I just want to stop and talk about feelings for for just a minute or two more. The fact that they're just feelings 
and that we shouldn't build our life on them doesn't mean that God doesn't care how you feel. I really want you to know that. God cares about everything about you. The Apostle Paul talks about us being body, soul, and spirit. He identifies three aspects of us. And the body, that's quite straightforward. That's the stuff that goes brown on the beach in Wales and expands when you expose it to ice cream. It's, that's what we live in. I call it my earth suit. Okay. Our spirit is that part that is recreated perfect and righteous before God when we're born again. So what's your soul? My understanding is that's my emotions, my intellect, the place that I live in my head. I want to show you something. Very well-known scripture. It's been a lifesaver to me. Psalm 23. I'm sure I did put it here somewhere. I could quote it, but I need to read it. David's talking about God's provision, and he says this The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, gives me a place of physical rest. He leads me beside quiet waters. He gives me something to drink. He sustains my physical need. He refreshes my soul. He restores my soul. He puts back together my feelings. He puts back together my perception of myself, my self-worth. The fact that I'm saying to you that our feelings are just feelings and they're not right or wrong is because I want to encourage you not to be bound and held down by them. But I don't want you to think that we serve a callous God who says, I don't care how you feel. What kind of a father does that? What kind of a father does that? We have a father who's prepared to pick us up and cuddle us, who will restore how we feel. But sometimes before that happens, we need to be in the place where we're ready to respond to what he said. I just want to touch on a, on a few sort of points around the fringes. Elijah's first route was away into the desert, into his cave. Restoration started when he came out of the cave to stand in the presence of God. One of the things that the devil will bring into your life when you're struggling is a sense of unworthiness, I said to you, of that guilt, of this is your own fault. And in doing so, he will try and encourage you or discourage you from talking to God. Here's one of the biggest lies that the devil puts in our lives. If something's messed up in your life, before you can go and stand with all that muck before God, you've got to fix it up and panel beat yourself a little bit and put a bit of paint over the damaged places and do the best that you can and then take your partially repaired self and stand before God and say, I've done all I can, will you fix the rest? That's a lie. That's a lie. You can't fix yourself. Go and stand before God with all the junk and all the hurt and all the pain and all the stuff that you're embarrassed by and just take it to Him. Don't turn away from Him. Run to Him. The healing and the restoration is in the presence of God. And I want to point something out to you. You know, we spoke about feasting at the table of the Lord. We spoke about, and when we, when we talk about that, often our minds go to feasting with God in heaven. But this piece of scripture says he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God's restoration comes, starts now 
starts now. Turn to him. You can find his table right here, right now. It's not one day far away. It's available right now. And that restoration and that goodness and the mercy, let's just read all of that psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me. Elijah was refreshed. He was encouraged. And then he was guided. He guides me along the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. He's not going back to an easy task. But God will be with him. For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. You empower me. You anoint me. You appoint me. You send me out. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. You know, one of the concepts that I had to get to terms with about God that is such an encouragement is this. The love of God follows you. The singer that I enjoy a lot, a guy called Michael Card. He wrote a song where he talks about God as the hound of heaven hunting us down. God doesn't stand at a distance and say, make your broken way to me. He comes looking for Elijah in the cave. He comes looking for him under the broom tree. His goodness and his mercy follow him through the desert. His goodness and his mercy follow him into the cave. His anointing takes him back to do the job. His presence goes with him and changes him. God hasn't changed. And I want to say to you, whatever you're sitting with, don't add guilt to it. Don't ascribe it to something that you've done and and link it to that and therefore feel unworthy and untouchable. Don't be governed by how you feel, no matter how real and intense those feelings are. God knows them and God understands them and God wants to restore them. But don't let them keep you from stepping out of your cave into the presence of God where that still small voice can overshadow the earthquake and the fire and the storm. And God can speak his truth into the situation. And God can speak his anointing into the situation. And God can give you sustenance at his table in the midst of your enemies. And God can anoint you and send you out to do what it is that he's called you to do. But I see something else, and and, and I need to say this, because I want to be real and practical. If you're in that place, don't try to deal with this by yourself. Get help. Get help. God said to him, I'm providing these people to work with you. I've got 7,000 people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. God provided... If you look at this, so it says in verse 1 Kings 19, verses 19 to 21. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him, and then Elijah left his oxen and ran after Elijah. And he became his servant. God sent him on his way to get people around him. I want to say, if you're sitting in your cave and you're struggling with that pain, speak out to people, get them around you, get help. Don't think that you have to deal with this by yourself. Don't think that you have to scrape together your spiritual strength and deal with this by yourself. And then I want to say this, because I believe this strongly. Sometimes that help might involve a doctor. 
sometimes that help needs to involve a counsellor. It makes me wonder sometimes, whereas Christians, we are quite happy to go and see a doctor if we've got a broken leg. If you get knocked over by a bus and your leg is doing a 90 degree angle and you're lying there, your Christian friends don't come and say to you, ooh, you just better pray about this and don't see a doctor because otherwise you're not showing much faith. They're quite okay with you going to the doctor and getting a plaster cast put around it so that your leg can heal because it's being protected. Why then is there such a stigma about going to a doctor if people are suffering from depression? Why particularly amongst Christians are there people who seem to think, I'm not allowed to talk about this. I'm not allowed to seek professional help for this. I'm not allowed to go to a counselor because that would indicate I'm a person of small faith. If you need help, get help. If you need help, get help. Elijah got people around him. And he went back to battle. And he did amazing things. I want to say this to you. God will never see you as being redundant. God will never see you as having nothing left to give. God cares. God knows. And God will speak the truth into the situation. The challenge is responding. Coming out of the cave. Letting the presence of God change you. Letting him nurture you. Letting him fill you up. Get help.